Welcome to a new episode of Mediterranean Sustainability Partners. I'm your host, Ellen Wasalina. I'm so pleased to be able to interview Ambassador Shota Gvineria. Uh, and with the Ambassador, we're going to talk about hybrid war in contemporary security. And here are the segments that we're going to talk about. Hybrid warfare in the first segment cyberspace considerations in the second segment, and in the final segment, information ecosystems. Here is the biography of Ambassador Guineria. Ambassador Guineria joined the Baltic Defense College as a lecturer in defense and cyber studies in July of 2019. He is also a non-resident fellow at the Economic Policy Research Center since 2017. Previously, the ambassador had been working in various positions in Georgia's public sector. Among other positions, Ambassador Gnineria served as a Deputy Secretary at National Security Council of Georgia. He covered NATO's integration and security policy-related issues as the Ambassador-at-Large in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Georgia. In his previous capacity until August 2016, he held the position of the Foreign Policy Advisor to the Minister of Defense of Georgia. Through 2010 to 2014, he served as the Ambassador of Georgia to the Kingdom of the Netherlands. In 2010, he was promoted to the position of Director of European Affairs Department at the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Georgia. And prior to that, he served as a head of NATO division at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Georgia. The period of April 2006 until October 2008, Ambassador Gvineria was posted as the counselor of the Georgian mission to NATO. The ambassador holds an MA in Strategic Security Studies from Washington's National Defense University, and he also holds an MA in International Relations from the Diplomatic School of Madrid and Public Administration from the Georgian Technical University. I hope you'll enjoy this episode, and thank you for tuning in. 55 countries and five continents to Mediterranean Sustainability Partners. Welcome to a new episode of Mediterranean Sustainability Partners. I'm your host, Ellen Wasalina. I'm so pleased to have Ambassador Shota Gvineria join us this morning. Good morning, Shota. Good morning. So it's nice to pleasure. see you again. It's my pleasure to be on your podcast. Thanks for the Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Now, as you know, as, as, as agreed, Shota, we are going to talk about hybrid war in contemporary security. And I'll just announce to our to our listeners that there'll be three segments, hybrid warfare in the first segment, cyberspace considerations in the second segment, and information ecosystem in the third segment. Now, I have to say something before we go forward. You know, Georgia is the 22nd place in our audience of 55 countries. And I would just like to have you say hello, maybe to our Georgian listeners. Would you like to say something in Georgian, maybe? 
Excellent. Now, I must say that I know you're sitting in Estonia. We don't have any Estonian listeners, so I'm hoping that you can help us beef up our Estonian listenership. Would you do that for me? Well, I'll, I'll give it a try. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. So, uh, as agreed, then I will sort of frame the discussion this morning, Yoshota. Uh, as you know, the NATO summit is coming up. And I'd like to just read uh, some, some information that I've prepared for our podcast this morning. At the 2021 Brussels summit, NATO leaders asked Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg to lead the process of developing the next strategic concept. The Secretary General initiated a phase of internal consultations and external engagements. Internal consultations are being conducted with allies on NATO's evolving strategic environment approach and priorities. NATO is also engaging with partners, other international organizations, and with expert communities, youth organizations, civil society, and the private sector. After this consultation phase, allies will negotiate and agree the next strategic concept with a view to leaders endorsing it at the 2022 Madrid summit, which is coming up in June, June 28 to 30. The 2010 strategic concept commits NATO to the goal of creating the conditions for a world without nuclear weapons, but confirms that as long as there are nuclear weapons in the world, NATO will remain a nuclear alliance. Just a few points here. It restates our firm commitment to keep the door to NATO open to all European democracies that meet the standards of membership, because enlargement contributes to uh, sorry contributes to to our goal of a Europe whole, free, and at peace. And finally, it commits NATO to continuous reforms towards a more effective, efficient, and flexible alliance so that our taxpayers get the most security for the money they invest in defense, which is a big subject, as you know, uh, Shota, these days. All right, so into our first subject then, hybrid warfare. What is it? Is the use of various military and non-military means to menace an enemy. Now, I know you have a lot more experience in this domain, so I'd like you to tell our listeners a little bit about what hybrid warfare is exactly, and your experience, of course, uh, is much greater than mine, so please. Well, thank you very much for this useful intro. It will guide me through the rest of the podcast, I think, uh, and uh, we have now all these main uh, areas uh, which I wanted to discuss in more details with the listener. Uh, pinned down already as a path. So uh, I'll start with the hybrid warfare as agreed. Well, your first question, Ellen, it's uh, exactly the spot on question because uh, we have not been able, even in the expert community, to agree how to define hybrid warfare. <laughs> and it is a problem because, you know, both words in the term hybrid warfare has controversies in it. You know, <clears throat> we are not able to agree where this hybridity comes from. Does, does the hybridity come from the understanding that there is this uh, combination of military and non-military instruments of power, or it's only hybrid warfare when, you know, uh, we have uh, the so-called soft instruments of power involved. Right. And if there is this armed conflict involved, then we do not talk about hybrid warfare anymore, and it, has, it is becoming a conventional warfare. 
So there are lots of ideas if it's hybrid warfare, a correct term, or hybrid threats, or, mm. or uh, should we call it warfare if it does not involve actual armed conflict, and if we're uh, <clears throat> focusing on the political informational or economic instruments of national power then what makes it a warfare so uh, in this discussion i think uh, we are losing uh, uh, two main points uh, and uh, whatever we call it you know it, it, it's hybrid warfare or hybrid threats or non-linear warfare or asymmetric warfare or gray zone warfare this is something that is favorable mm-hmm favorable term in uh, the United States mainly. It doesn't really matter. Uh, Let's call it a contemporary warfare or the modern warfare or 21st century warfare. In my understanding, what is the most important thing is to understand what is it? How how does it work? And only then we will be able to find the factors just to defend ourselves. Exactly. So now let's go into this um, let's say nuts and bolts of what is it and how does it work first of all so in the 21st century now there are two very important uh, changes to the understanding of warfare that we have to realize on the theoretical level as well as on the policy first the 20th century understanding of peace and war is no longer applicable here because in the 20th century we had two conditions very clearly defined peace and war so Mm -hmm. we are at peace or we declare war you know ambassador is going to the ministry of foreign affairs sending the not verbal to the recipient state and then two armed forces they get together at a very specific battlefield they start shooting each other (laughs) and when the political statement uh political settlement of the of the armed conflict uh, is there these two armed forces they go back to their you know places of original dislocation this is something that is never going to happen in the 21st century but why is that though but why is that because there are so many non-military instruments of power that we can use to achieve our objectives and even if we're getting to the conventional phase of conflict like we see it in ukraine now it's never limited to the armed forces and use of arms Uh, and uh, there will be all domains uh, political informational economic financial law enforcement cyber considerations all these things will be involved so warfare is not exclusively a military affair anymore and all it's a it's a all society all of a nation affair and everybody is involved and everybody is affected Mm. so it's it's not anymore the fact that you know you are going to sign up for the military and get put on your uniform to be part of that warfare no we in the societies we do have our role in contemporary warfare and whether we want it or not somehow we are involved in it one way or another through one domain or another so this understanding that okay now now we are at peace and now we are at war it's actually blurred as Valery Gerasimov, you might remember, uh, yes. the, he's a uh, uh, commander of uh, uh, Russian armed forces up until now. His famous article, which was 
labeled as Gerasimo's doctrine, but then was denounced as a doctrine because mm-hmm. it's not a doctrine really, but it's a it's a topic mm-hmm. of discussion. I think it's just a, the uh, reflection of the general of how in the 20th, uh, 21st century Russia should achieve its objectives and how Russian military has to evolve in order to be effective and relevant in the 21st century. Uh, and there he says, what, what, if you have to pick just one thing that is most important in that uh, article that he wrote, mm-hmm. uh, he says that the boundaries between the peace and the war is blurred. And this is what I'm trying to point out here. Sure. That uh, the hybrid warfare for me is a state when it's not already a standard understanding of peace because things are getting sour. We're using the combination of military and non-military instruments to achieve our objective. It's mostly clandestine. It's mostly below the threshold of conflict, but it depends, you know, if it's Mm. political objective requires that you involve more military instruments then you do that if if not if you can achieve it through other political influences then why would you use military instruments sure sure very expensive it costs a lot in blood and in treasure nobody wants to use it so no Mm. you have so many other tools to get to your objective it doesn't make sense for and you know all the states and non-state actors they're rational actors sometimes maybe we cannot actually uh, wrap our heads around what they're trying to do but it does not mean they're not rational they have their own rationale which is different from ours sometimes we're surprised why would they do that but so i have to ask you sorry i want to interrupt you just there because you said something very important so uh, non-state and non-state actors uh, are you saying that across the board then um even these non-state actors, and we've seen it, uh, just want to sort of interject here, uh, are capable of mobilizing uh, these uh, actions. And I might also throw in another uh, item into your discussion is technology. Could you just sort of uh, help us understand? So there's no clear line between peace and war. We, we, We understand that now. Could you talk to me about the difference between how state and non-state actors and then how technology intervenes, please? Yes. <clears throat> so trying to, to, to uh, summarize my two main points about temporary warfare. First, there is no clear line between war and peace and everybody right. is involved. It's not exclusively military affair anymore. And the second uh, is that actually uh, there is always a combination of military and non-military instruments of power involved in any sort of conflict or confrontation today. And uh, we have to really appreciate that, uh, that there are uh, lots and lots of tools that our adversaries may use to achieve their objectives without having to fight a battle with us specifically in conventional warfare. And that's, by the way, how Sun Tzu described hybrid warfare yes. in the fifth century before the, uh, before yeah. the when he said in his monumental book, Art of War, that the art of war is not actually in winning the battle, but in achieving your objective without having to fight the battle. And this exactly. is something that, that describes it uh, in the best way. Now, if you ask me, <clears throat> Why do we have this 
real uh, monumental change in the way we understand and wage warfare in the 21st century, that exactly goes to your question. Yes. Because now we have cyberspace. There was no cyberspace before. Now we have cyberspace as the new area of operations. And it has changed the way we apply all instruments of national power, be it military or non-military. It's just transformed because now everything is happening online and everything is happening in the cyberspace. So what is happening in the cyberspace was sort of considered to be a virtual reality before. Now it's even more real than what is happening in front of our eyes in the physical domain. It is so, uh, so, uh, let's say, uh, much affecting our everyday lives and uh, whatever you at our work and it also affects warfare from that perspective because uh the the, those uh, not especially non-military instruments of power like political domain uh, information domain economics and what we do there you know is so much uh, affected by the cyberspace that that's that's the main reason other than that you know as i mentioned already with sun tzu these concepts have been there forever and everybody in all the conflicts of in the humankind has ever had were hybrid because there was never this exclusively military to military uh, let's say confrontation where this economic aspects were not important, the informational and propaganda uh, aspects were not important. Sure. Even in the First World War or the Second World War, or even sure. during common times, they have been using this, you know, information uh, mm-hmm. campaigns to keep the subordinated territories in, in place, right? So that's uh, <clears throat> actually not new, but what is really new there is the cyberspace and its effects and uh, its. Uh, and technology, right? Would you say that technology has, has helped us amplify that part? You're absolutely right. Going back to Roman times and the Peloponnese War and, you know, things that we've studied, you know, that I've studied, you've studied, um, war has been transformed, but they're still using the same instruments. But as we advance technologically, they're becoming more sophisticated, would you say? And then we'll end on that because we're going to talk about cyberspace in the next segment. Mm-hmm. Yes. Ambassador Shotek Vinenya. Hello, Ambassador. <laughs> so nice of you to join me again in the second segment. I really do appreciate it. So, as we said in the first segment, now we're going to continue our discussion, if you would, about cyberspace considerations. And I'm going to go back again just for our listeners uh, to, to sort of frame the discussion in the strategic concept from 2010 in the security environment section number 12. Cyber attacks are becoming more frequent, more organized, and more costly in the damage that they inflict on government administrations, businesses, economies, and potentially also transportation and supply networks and other critical infrastructure. They can reach a threshold that threatens national and Euro-Atlantic prosperity, security, and stability. Foreign militaries and intelligence services organize criminals, 
terrorists and or extremist groups can each be the source of such attacks. And I think, would you not agree, Dioshota, uh, that we are seeing something like that happen before our very eyes today? That is absolutely true. Uh, so the the process that we described in previous episode, when you know it's not uh, already a peace from its standard understanding, but it's not yet a war from its Clausewitzian uh, point of view, when uh, it's um, only it's dominated by the conventional military uh, uh, conflict. Uh, actually, we. Uh, what we see today in Ukraine has changed a little bit the understanding of what is possible and what yes. is not. Nobody would think that this kind of war was possible uh, in Europe in the 21st century, the all-out yeah. war and one country invading another country, which uh, actually uh, does not challenge directly our understanding of hybrid warfare and its importance, because this is a black swan event, let's say. It's not something yes. to expect, it's not something that will be a reoccurring pattern, uh, hopefully, and this will be a uh, <clears throat> black spot in the history of Europe of the 21st century and it's it's it's, it's an exclusive uh, let's say and extraordinary thing rather than a normal situation. I hope so, yes. I wanted to give uh, just a little disclaimer for that but <clears throat> well coming back to the uh, cyberspace considerations and we sort of alluded to this in the uh, first episode as well that the way we work the way we live uh, and the way we use uh, instruments of our power uh, uh, has been uh, transformed uh, since the emergence of the cyberspace. Because now all those instruments of power, political, military, informational, economic, and all the others that we have in our toolbox are <clears throat> being used either through cyberspace or in cyberspace this is very interesting because um the we see how some of the critical infrastructure has been affected uh and i'll go back to some very recent elements for example even in the us the pipeline uh meat factories um different critical infrastructure uh and we're seeing it now of course in the war in ukraine um ports being blocked uh, grain not being able to get out uh, Elon Musk sending in Starlink, you know, satellite dishes for the Ukrainians to use uh, in, in their war effort. So, again, um, I think the, and, and I like what is said here because this was written in 2010. Something was coming. Um, as you know, I wrote a book on, on Ukraine as well in, in 2014, but I saw something coming that was going to disrupt this relative peace and as you mentioned in the first segment war and peace there's a blurred line prosperity security uh, we're talking now about food security and famines because of this war uh, what would you like to tell us on that effect because i know you have a great experience in this domain yeah <clears throat> thank you thank you for, for for this question actually yes this is uh what i was trying to point out throughout my um, academic work as well that actually over focusing on conventional um, military uh, 
side of security and defense only does not help us to be more uh, safe, secure, and to defend ourselves uh, properly from our adversaries. Because if you see, we're talking a lot about this hybrid warfare, right? But right. you see the budget, if you really un- want to understand what's happening, follow the money, right? That's the goal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> how much of our security and defense uh, money we spent on exclusively conventional military defense and all the other domains taken together the ones that you just yeah. mentioned, you know the uh, economic food security cyber uh, information strategic energy security security etc etc so what's the portion you know of tanks uh artillery missile uh launchers, launchers yeah. versus having that you know very well elaborated strategic communication strategy that can uh basically keep your societies cohesively uh yeah. united and uh cognitive in the cognitive battlefield understanding that actually we right defend our country ourselves all of us together right that's right just an example you know it's this example is not to undermine the importance of conventional military of course not uh, but of course no just in opposite it's to emphasize how much we need to learn to reinforce our conventional military defense with other aspects of warfare which in many cases can be more harmful because you know if you lose the ability to defend yourself and if you just have this policy of avoiding conflict at all costs and you promise mm. to your adversary that okay i'm not ready to get into armed conflict no matter what whatever happens i'm right. not gonna do that you know then it's a very good green light for your adversary to exploit that threshold you know and to achieve <clears throat> its own political objectives by abusing that threshold of not going uh, right. above the, the threshold of military conflict and, you know, the, extract concessions every time you sit at the negotiations <laughs> table. And that's exactly what we have been uh, seeing for years, you know, since the invasion of Georgia in 2008. I was going to say, would you like to talk to us a little bit about that? Because I'm sure you were involved in that, weren't you? I was involved in that. And, uh, that was, uh, I would say this, uh, okay, let's put it this way, unforgettable period of my life <laughs> when I was representing Georgia in uh, NATO headquarters in Brussels during Russia-Georgia okay. war. And uh, <clears throat> actually, uh, that's that's exactly what I will frame uh, in a more conceptual way, maybe for the listeners to be more sure. uh, more e- easy to uh, to grasp what I'm trying to say here. Excellent. So, Russia has developed a kill chain, the pattern of how they want to uh, achieve their objectives given very limited resources that they have. And now we see uh, what kind of military they have. We always knew that their GDP was somewhere between France and Italy, you know, not even the first rate European uh, uh, country economy based on the figures and numbers. So what do you do when you have that 
your overblown ambitions of being this world power, you know, and you don't have a proper military. They used to have, they used to claim that they have the second best military in the world. Now it looks like they have second best military in Ukraine only. So, <laughs> and uh, this uh, uh, economic performance, social conditions, we don't even have to talk about it. It's so. Uh, it's uh, by European standards, it's the uh, it's below, way below average. Let's put it this. Sure. So, how do you achieve those, you know, world power uh, objectives? Uh, Ambitions, yeah. That resources, and that's that's where uh, all this kicks in. So, you develop a kill chain. Uh, you develop a pattern. You create the problem. You escalate to maximum when everybody is scared to death that they're. It's gonna be now the third world war, or there's sure. a nuclear war. To be one yeah. war, you know, you ask, start asking these questions. Then you invite everybody to sit around the table and discuss the problem you artificially created. You extract concessions because everybody is scared to death that there is yeah. war. You secure those gains that you just you know, extracted at the negotiations tables and then you repeat you know in wow. geography in different point in time so sure. this is what we have been looking uh, uh, in georgia then back uh, then in crimea then in eastern ukraine then in nagorno-karabakh in Kazakhstan, yeah. in belarus in syria yes so this worked every time the skill change and then you know what we're looking now the first time uh in a very long time this skill chain suddenly stopped working in the uh in ukraine because uh russia created multiple problems on our watch you remember if we go quickly through the chronology what was going on since uh september 21 up until February 22 when the war started. Yes. Right? There was the migration crisis. Yes. Uh, there was the uh, energy crisis with the skyrocketing uh, prices, right? This is, yes. There was the Zapat 21 military exercise in in the region, which actually rehearsed nuking a NATO member state and occupying the, the, the territory of the NATO member state. Massive information operations that were supporting all this. So all domains, you see, information, political, economic, uh, even migration, this social element of it. Yes. So, wow. and as a culmination to all those domains, then 200,000 soldiers massing around Ukraine's borders. See? And, 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 and nobody shut that nobody believed and even here in France the experts the biggest greatest expert friend and Russian expert said she didn't even believe that Russia would invade I didn't believe I said they're not gonna do that you know and then we all were proved wrong well actually it's not um, because of our uh, lack of knowledge of Russia that we're wrong but I think because uh, it was so irrational uh, yeah. And it was so visible that what we're seeing now in Ukraine was the only possible outcome of that all-out war and invasion that we didn't think that somebody in Kremlin can be stupid enough to do that. That's why That's why we, we, we actually didn't think that, that that was going to happen because this, what we are looking at today after the 100 days of war, yeah. uh, uh, it was, was the only possible outcome of that invasion and, and uh, 
it's uh, very unfortunate that uh, uh, decision makers in Russia didn't read it properly because they we, we could have avoided this, you know, if certainly they, if if they would see this in the worst nightmare dream they had, they would have not done it. Not done that, right? All right. Well, listen. Let, let's stop here because we still have the next segment to go into information ecosystems. Thank you again, Shota. Thank you so much. Welcome back. All right. So now in this last segment, as agreed, uh, we're going to talk about information ecosystems. And I know you wanted to tie in some cyber that we didn't get to finish on in our previous discussion. But let me just go to point number 14 in the strategic concept of 2010. A number of significant technology-related trends, including the development of laser weapons, electronic warfare, and technologies that impede access to space if you're poised to have major global effects that will impact on NATO military planning and operations. So uh, I'll let you pick up where you, you left off. You wanted to tell us more about the cyber. Uh, go ahead. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, we... Uh, we're discussing this uh, Russia's pattern of waging uh, hybrid warfare before, and the stages that uh, they have been successfully going through at least since the uh, since invasion of Georgia but way back as well so they create the problem they escalate they negotiate and extract concessions they secure the gains and then they repeat it again in different geography and in different uh, uh, time, point in time. So, uh, and, and we have started to discuss that uh, this pattern stopped working uh, with regard to Ukraine because they have been building up this uh, uh, tools of blackmail uh, where they used multiple domains with migration crisis and energy crisis and uh, information operations all reinforcing each other. And then culmination of uh, 200,000 soldiers uh, along the borders. By the way, I, I was always skeptical about this operation going forward in the all-out war because uh, for some it was 200,000 soldiers, but for me it was just 200,000 soldiers okay. for invading a country like Ukraine with 45 million and that huge territory. Huge country, yeah. It's 200,000 military personnel uh, is nowhere close enough. So that's why... So, I so, sorry, so what would they have needed? Because uh, to hold, you know, it's one thing to invade, but to hold and maintain, how many would they have needed? At least five times more. At least five. Okay. Uh, but uh, right. even the quality of the armed forces that Russia proved now on the battlefield, even five times more wouldn't have been enough to maintain occupation of the whole country. Well, so well. that's why I thought, that's why I thought that actually we are again going through this uh, pattern that I was uh, describing. And now, you know, uh, Russians will again say, okay, so we're ready to invade, you know, so now let's sit down and talk. But then that's, mm -hmm. they missed the main point when they issued mm -hmm. ultimatums in December 
2021, remember? They yes. to lay out what they want in return to not starting war in Ukraine. And it's a little bit different discussion. However, uh, quoting the previous um, strategic concept of NATO and what I expect to see in the next one, this is, I think, very relevant. And we have to realize and analyze what Russians were asking for in that officially written documents uh, to NATO and to the United yes. States, because they see only United States as the main adversary. They don't even see uh, Europe as a credible partner in defense and security. They do not basically care what Europe does or says. If they mm. United States as the main rival there. I know mm -hmm. it's a provocative statement, but uh, I can throw <laughs> a longer discussion. <laughs> we'll have to do another podcast. <laughs> yeah. And uh, then, you know, uh, basically this ultimatum was about fixing and legitimizing Russia's sphere of exclusive influence in its neighborhood. Right. And the, right. what it calls it near abroad. You know? So that's a, that's a yes. very illustrative term to understand how Russia sees the territories exactly. and they see it as the territories, not the countries, not the Soviet Yes, of course. But it's near abroad, you know, it's not exactly Russia. Uh, it is kind of abroad, you know, but it's not a real abroad, just like England or France. It's it's a near abroad, you know, that, that, that's mm -hmm. very interesting. And then they were asking NATO and the United States to withdraw from that near abroad territories and to leave Russia there as a great regional player with all the carte blanche, you know, to do whatever they want with Ukraine or Georgia or uh, Belarus or uh, other countries of the Eastern Partnership. That was that was the precondition of uh, for Putin not to go forward with right. That. Right. Of course, it was not acceptable. It couldn't have been acceptable for anybody in Brussels or in Washington. Of course not, no. And then, when when uh, uh, when Putin uh, got a response that it's not going to happen, this is not the world we live in now in the 21st century, where we right. can actually give you the sovereign nations as your you know vassal states or a new <laughs> kind of thing. That's not going to happen. And that's the moment when he realized that this blackmail that he was building for last uh, years didn't work and then he had to go in to actually maintain the credibility of his uh, uh, kill chain for, yeah, for yeah. and that's the moment when actually this uh, uh, whole strategy went wrong because it was built on the understanding and an assumption and you know Alan that Every strategy is based on the assumptions. And if you do yes. not make a proper assumption in the beginning at yes. the step of your strategy, then it doesn't matter. You can have brilliant, genius ideas in your strategy. It will go wrong if it's based on this uh, wrong assumptions. And this strategy of Russian Federation in Ukraine was based on the wrong assumption that this blackmail would work uh, again that Europeans would press Ukraine not to respond and to give concessions again, whatever they wanted, just to avoid yeah, imagine that. that yeah. Ukrainians were not able to resist this. These two basic assumptions that they had made them think that, okay, now we will blackmail them again, we will get what we want, and that's it. So when, 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 when this 
And now I'm coming to this point of uh, the importance of information as the yes. main resource in the 21st century. Then yes. what happened is that the United States started to share their intelligence information uh, in a live stream manner. You know, sure. they started to leak information about the specific numbers and locations of the Russian troops. So, uh, in this kind of operations, all the, the surprise effect is always the most important thing for uh, the preconditions for success. And Putin always managed to surprise us before in this previous mm-hmm. engagement. But this time, it it, it was just didn't work away from him by the by the information that was shared by the United States. I am actually uh, confessing that I thought. Most of what we would hear in January and beginning of February from the United States intelligence was the information operation by the United States. You know, just trying to, just trying to uh, stay ahead of the curve. Yeah, I, I they kept warning, that. right? They kept warning us, and they said, "This is going to happen. We see this happening." And and what? How did you re- Ukraine reply? They said, "Oh no, don't, don't, you know, don't build up the ante. You know, we don't need this kind of." Uh, you know, talk, we, we need, we don't want to keep things peaceful, you know, and now we know what happened, right? Exactly. And so that was the first time in a very long time when Russians lost information warfare and thus lost the ability to blackmail. And then things started to wow. different, different uh, battlefields and in different domains. And that's, that's how I would explain as one example of how important the possession and control of information is in the yes. 21st century. That's the and, and technology, right? And technology, right? And technology. And then this uh, <clears throat> leads me back to what we owe uh, to our listeners now on cyberspace, right? <laughs> <Because> yes. <laughs> the cyberspace as the uh, information-based domain, primarily. So let me explain what I uh, what I mean here. So there are four traditional domains that we know for operations, right? It's air, land, sea, and now space. As yes. Long as a uh, you know regular domain for operations. Now we have fifth, which is the cyberspace, but it's different in many uh, many aspects from that traditional domains, but it's has similarities as well. Let me explain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the NATO's documents that I've been referring to, uh, <clears throat> not in 2010 though, uh, um, but uh, later since 2014, 2016, a NATO documentation actually regards cyberspace as the fifth area and domain of operation. So how NATO looks at cyber defense and cyber security is that, and I uh, will try to give uh, you closest to quote as possible. So we need to be able to defend ourselves in cyberspace just as we defend ourselves in air, land, sea, and space. That's the philosophy of NATO, how they they see it as a defensive uh, alliance. And now, I already mentioned uh, a couple of times that I think cyberspace is an important domain because it is an overarching domain where all other domains are actually being used and exploited. But coming back to this information side, 
in land you, you use land how you use land domain how you do you exploit land, land domain you have car a vehicle that gets you from point a to point b on land. right you exploit the uh, air you have an aircraft and you use this aircraft to get to point a to point b and it's connected through land because it starts on land and it goes to the air and right. back to land right in cyberspace <clears throat> you use cyberspace to create store exchange and move and manipulate with information so that's that's why it is designed for by default you know that because this um uh, first uh, internet line was designed to exchange research information between yes several uh, uh education institutions right that's how it started so yes so of information in California, it had to be transferred to Washington DC quickly and then exchanged somewhere else, maybe with the United Kingdom. So how do you do that? You create that piece of information, you put this into the pipe, internet pipe, and uh, this makes it to the other line of uh, internet connection. So right. basically this is, this is how it works, but this is an information-based domain. And now, uh, going back to what we said, if information is the key resource in the 21st century, and I'm really convinced that yes, yes, it is. It's not oil anymore. It's not even nuclear weapons. If you own and possess and control information today, That's right. then you have the power. That's the most important yeah. principle. So now to 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 have that information, to get access to that information, you don't go to libraries anymore. No. <laughs> you just go to the internet, right? Yes, yes. And that's how it happens. That's how it, uh, cyberspace uh, is the most important domain of operations in my understanding. But it's it's many other things as well. It's also the nervous system of the country. That's how. Yes. Everything's based on it, right? All our infrastructure now is 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 intertwined, interjoined. And not only be, you know, and we can talk about sea cables, undersea cables, but now, like you say, we have we have space. Uh, we cannot do anything, Chota, as you know, without the internet. And I might add to that, which has augmented this, and this has been used for good and bad, are these GAFA, you know, these Facebook, Google, uh, you know, the the big uh, companies, social media companies, that have really given a space to both good and bad actors. Would you say? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I see cyberspace as um, being composed uh, from three main segments. And this is technology, only one aspect of it, the cables, the wires, the routers, the, right. the transmitters and machines and computers. This is one technology aspect of cyberspace. Yes. But two other even more important aspects of cyberspace are people and processes. Yes. What makes cyberspace a very different domain, uh, if we'll, in comparison to air, land, sea, and space, is that it is the human-made domain. This is the only domain that we humans create well, for ourselves, and we that. use this domain to navigate all the other four natural domains that that has always been there. Fantastic. And, and you <coughs> have those, uh, you know, uh, natural uh variables and factors in all the other domains right in internet in cyberspace you don't have weather you know you don't... <laughs> that's true yes. and if uh, 
anything happens in the cyberspace, it means that somebody, a human, made it happen there. It's not going to happen by its own, you know? So, uh, again, uh, humans are the most important inherent part of the cyberspace as the creators and operators and managers of that cyberspace. And human, by the way, is the worst vulnerability we have in the cyberspace because most of the big cyber attacks that we suffer are actually caused by the human error and humans say because somebody was uh, was lazy enough not to change uh, uh, their you know i love you password <laughs> in a month <laughs> where they just uh, typed uh, from one till seven their password and then it was uh, super easy for for the uh, invaders to get into our uh, systems well. and the processes third important aspect is the process and again these processes are set by humans what kind of information should be accessible to whom in what circumstances based on what procedures how often we have to change our passwords uh, and how strong our password should be because if you ask your uh, employees to have 25 characters in password including the figures and uh, yeah. the letters and special characters it's not it's it's not a guarantee for you that uh, you will be uh, you you should feel safer because then they tend to forget these 25 letters and they start writing them on the uh, paper sure. notepads yeah and uh, actually uh, pinning them to the uh, screen or to the processor of the computer which makes it very easy for everyone so easy right <laughs> well is uh, uh, human is uh, a very important aspect and the most vulnerable aspect of the cyberspace as well. So that's that's what's the different. Again, another difference is that you are now in Paris and now I'm in Estonia and we have many listeners in Georgia, as you said. Yes. There is no distance in the cyberspace. From Tartu, Paris is exactly the same distance as Georgia or Washington DC or Jakarta. No, you don't have maps. You don't have borders. Uh, yeah. There is nowhere that, you know, your French- There's no barriers. And, There's no barriers. And Estonian cyberspace begins. So you cannot navigate those uh, um, so uh, cyberspace um, uh, considerations based on your national interests only and the understanding of what is yours and what is not uh, actually yours. So this is very, very important to understand. That, and that's why I started from this, uh, sure. that cyberspace is the game changer. And the way we operate in the cyberspace defines how effective we are in economic, political, information, and military domains. So, yeah. Uh, I think that's, that, yes. that's so wonderful. And I'm going to have to end it there. We're going to have to do another podcast, as you know. Uh, I usually do another podcast with, with many people because we have so much to say to each other. Thank you so much, Dirshota Ambassador Gwinerya. Would you like to say maybe some parting remarks to your Georgian listeners? Thank, thank you. Thank you so much for, for uh, saying a few words to our Georgian listeners and we look forward to getting more more listeners in Estonia, right? Uh, so, uh, and thank you again for your time. I know you're very busy. Thank you, Dershota. Thank you. Thank you.